Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. The Holy and Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I greet you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I hope you'll uh, indulge me this morning. Uh, I, you know, we just read the song of Mary. I haven't gotten quite as much time to play music as uh, maybe other times in the past, and so I figured I'd enjoy some time behind the piano here. If my playing seems fumbly, I apologize. It's because I sliced my finger quite well uh, about 20 minutes before the service, but I think we'll we'll make it through. Uh, and in order to do so, let's let's first pray for uh, for our hearing and for uh, for my healing here. Magnificent and mighty one, you've done great things. Reach out your hand again into our midst and turn our world upside down. Merciful one, remind us and fill us with your good news. Musical one, visit us with this song. By your Holy Spirit, sing in our spirits in such a way that we cannot help but join your song. Amen. I was recently reading a book by a songwriter named Andrew Peterson entitled Adorning the Dark, uh, Thoughts on Calling, Community, and the Mystery of Making. In it, he repeatedly and very personally describes the creative process, especially of songwriting. He does so in a way that I found uh, that rang disturbingly true for me. He lays out all of the insecurities and the inspiration as well as the, the patient drudgery and the surprises almost like magic. And then, at the end of it all, when you have a song, trying desperately to retrace your steps to discern how the song was born. Uh, he writes this. After every song is complete, I get amnesia. I think in the fast fading thrill of having written a song that I've finally unlocked the secret formula, discovered the missing number, solved the timeless mystery of how to write a song. I have at last answered for myself the question of whether the music or the lyrics come first. And the answer is, wait, I had it a second ago. What was it again? And it's gone. Even as the last note fades into silence, amnesia sets in, unquote. The source of a song is mysterious. But a song doesn't come from nowhere. And neither does Mary's. 
spontaneous as it may seem, it comes from the very place that we are later told she treasures and ponders what is happening in her heart. You see, this song she sings isn't an entirely new one. It's patterned after an old, old song of her people. The story goes that there was a woman who could not conceive or bear children. Her name was Hannah. To those around her, Hannah seemed inebriated with grief. She carried an anguished emptiness in her and was surrounded by social shame. And then suddenly, the Lord remembered her. She received grace, conceived, and bore a son and named him Samuel. And when she did, all of her waiting and her joy erupted and poured out in song. My heart rejoices in the Lord. There is no one holy like the Lord. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, and those who were hungry are hungry no more. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor up from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. You can hear the echoes of this in Mary's song. Mary remembers this song. Imagine her learning it, carrying it, turning it over and over in its story, humming it to herself until the right moment. And then suddenly, when something entirely unprecedented is happening, physically and spiritually within her, her song is ready. And she gives us a lesson here in tradition and improvisation. In Matthew, Jesus teaches that a scribe of the kingdom must be able to bring out of storage both what is old and what is new. And Mary here proves herself to be an inspired scribe with her song, reaching back into her people's story, retrieving and renewing the shape of their song. And so the song she sings connects her to her people's past, but also proclaims God's future. So with memory and with imagination, Mary's song holds all of time together. You know, music, maybe more than any other artistic medium, is time art. Music has duration. It is performed. It moves and unfolds in time. Whether playing or listening, it gets us involved and invested in time, in this time of the music as it lasts. To quote hymn writer Brian Wren, music's pattern progressions cannot be exactly repeated. Each hearing and performance are different. Even when the same piece is played or the same song sung time after time. During the seasons of Advent and Christmas, we know what it means to carry songs like this in our heart. And every year, the same carols are repeated and reimagined. You may have your own favorite versions of particular carols, and they remind us of past years, of time spent together and traditions. And it doesn't take much, I guarantee you, to bring uh, these carols quickly to mind and to mouth. Right? Now I imagine it doesn't even take that much. Maybe sometimes even a single note. You can finish it. 
These are songs that we have inherited and cherished. They, they live in us. And many of them bring us back to ourselves and to one another when we hear them. They remind us who we are and help us to move faithfully and imaginatively into the future. A note. We must be careful to indeed carry our songs forward and not to remove them from real time by sentimentalizing them or sterilizing them. We must listen afresh every time. I was reminded of this uh, by a warning from Thomas John Carlyle, a minister and poet who wrote this about uh, Mary's song. At our eternal peril, we choose to ignore the thunder and the tenor of her song, its revolutionary beat. We must remember that when Mary uses the word lowly, that the Lord has looked upon her lowliness, that the Lord has lifted up the lowly, she's not referring simply to an inner attitude of humility. She's referring to precisely those Isaiah declares the anointed one has come to proclaim good news, as we read earlier, to the oppressed, to the brokenhearted, to the prisoners and captives, both in Mary's time and place and in every time and place. Her song protests an unjust status quo and proclaims a new order of God's justice and peace. And this message is strengthened by the way in which Mary moves and expands from her personal specific experience into the experience of all of the lowly. She exemplifies what uh, the novelist James Joyce says that in the particular is contained the universal. Or put differently uh, by Frederick Beekner, the story of one of us is in some measure the story of us all. And Luke as a storyteller knows this well. Though in these early chapters he's presenting us with good news of great joy, of goodwill for all humanity, he begins by giving us something like keyholes to peer through. Zechariah alone in the temple. Mary alone at home. Her visit to her cousin. Shepherds in the quiet solitude of night. This is how we come into touch with the great and magnificent mysteries of faith in particular times and places in a face, in a story song. So if we want to hear Mary's song of the lowly and the particularity of our own, say, nation's history, we may turn our ears to black communities and churches. Uh, black theologian James Cone surveys the way that throughout the lynching era, black churches sang the spirituals they sang in slavery as a resilient and renewed hopeful protest against the injustice and violence they faced in their own day. He notes one in particular. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory 
another version that goes, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Precisely because I don't pretend to know, I'll quote from James Cone, who writes, In the first version of Nobody Knows, hope is carved out of a tenacious spirit, a stubborn refusal to be defeated by tragedy. In the second version, the source of the hope is Jesus. For he is a friend who knows about the trouble of the little ones. And he is the reason for their hallelujah. His divine presence is the most important message about black existence. Unquote. Song can be voice for the voiceless, tapping into the power of the powerless. This is the sort of song that Mary sings in a forgotten corner of the empire where the divine presence is the most important message. And her hope in this song is declared with such certainty, not just about what God will do, not just about what God is doing, but she declares it as having already been done. God lifted up the lowly, fed the hungry. Her certainty urgently calls us and all who hear the song, not only to proclaim with her, but to participate in all that God has done, is doing, and will do to bring justice and peace, even in the most impossible circumstances. In October of 1966, the English village of Aberfan faced a tragedy when an avalanche of coal waste killed 144 people, over three-quarters of whom were children. Admittedly, I learned about this event from um, the, the Netflix show The Crown, a historical uh, drama about the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And the show's retelling of this tragedy dwells with a particular detail. At the funeral for 81 of these children, the whole community gathered, dressed in black, around a long row of small caskets set into a trench for mourning. And slowly, voice by voice, they begin singing together the old hymn, Yesu, lover of my soul. Yesu, Oh, receive 
my soul at last. A song rising from their shared history into their shared tragedy joined a whole community in their sorrow. But not only that, just as that hymn holds together minor key and major key, it gives them voice to mourn, but also to hope in the presence of Jesus who hears, who cares, who acts. And they had hidden their hearts in the song. The song was hidden in their hearts, rather, and their hearts became hidden in the song. This Sunday in the church calendar is referred to as Gaudete Sunday, which, re- which means rejoice, taking the line out of Mary's song. And it occurs to me that the examples I'm using may not seem so joyful. Uh, after all, Mary's is a song of exultation, of celebration. And the joyful spirit is part of what makes our Christmas carols that I referred to earlier so powerful. Uh, Paul Westermeyer uh, puts this well. Joy inevitably breaks into song. Speech alone cannot contain its hilarity. The physical equipment that we use to laugh is the same physical equipment we use to sing. From laughter to song is a small step. To praise God, the highest form of joy is to make music. However, Westermeyer continues, sorrow also inevitably breaks into song. Speech alone cannot carry its moan. The physical equipment we use to cry is also the physical equipment we use to sing. From mourning to song is but a small step. To cry out to God and lament, the deepest form of sorrow is to make music, unquote. Joy is formed in and born from suffering. Earlier this week, I, I wrote a, a short essay on the Grinch. It was kind of a, a playful piece just pointing out how everything about Christmas, the details and adornments and festivities and, and uh, even the foods, did nothing but infuriate and alienate the Grinch. And it wasn't until after he decided to strip it all away, leaving the, the, this community of the Who's with nothing, the thing that at last struck a chord, that echoed and expanded in his bitter heart, was song, was their who song. As we learn in these intimate vignettes throughout the early chapters of Luke, Christ too came without ribbons, tags, packages, boxes, or bags, but not without song. Christ is sung and announced and celebrated all through the early chapters of Luke's story. I got to the end of writing that piece and felt uneasy, just as I do now. I, I want to be satisfied with a, a sound sermon on the gift of song, but it's ironic, isn't it? And even painfully so. To talk about shared songs when because of the spread of the virus, singing is precisely one of the things keeping us apart. 
This Christmas we will not celebrate with hymnal in hand and harmonies around. And yet song is still an essential work that we have to do as a people. You may be singing solo this year, as Mary did in this quiet encounter with her family. You may be singing along with screens and speakers. And yes, we may all first need to sit in the silence, the sadness and the strangeness that we cannot join our voices. But in that absence, just as in the long wait for Christ's arrival in the flesh, we are investing our voices in a new harvest of joy. So may you carry the songs of our past into our future. May the joy of Christ rest and resound in your hearts. To all of our 
Abraham and Israel to be our God forever. Come, O fount of grace that fills and fills. 